Welcome to the Future Charlotte podcast. I'm your host, Eli Portillo. I've spent more than a decade studying Charlotte, first as a journalist and now as assistant director of the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. 20 years ago, this city looked radically different. No light rail, a smaller skyline, and breweries, what breweries? What will we look like in the next 20 years? That's what we're exploring on this show. Our guest today is Jack Thompson, Executive Director of the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Historic Landmarks Commission. Jack, thanks for being here. Eli, thanks for inviting me. So just to uh, start off, I understand this is a new job, relatively new job for you, and also a return to Charlotte. So why don't you just uh, tell me, you know, who you are, how you came to this, and what brought you to your current role? Sure, sure. So I'm a, I'm a native of Western North Carolina and uh, attended college at UNC Greensboro. Um, I came to Charlotte in the early 2000s and worked for a local general contractor, small in scale, that had a a focus on historic preservation projects. And so during, between 2000, 2004, we did projects like the the log barn at the Charlotte Museum of History, uh, a rehabilitation of the Hezekiah, or the, Alexander House up on Mallard Creek uh, near UNC Charlotte. Um, In 2004, I went to Historic Salisbury Foundation, 45 minutes north of town, and was their uh, director there at that private nonprofit with a really intensive focus on advocacy and uh, real estate practice uh, involving historic preservation. From there, I spent about a decade in Asheville in a similar role with the private nonprofit. And uh, just one year ago, actually, uh, uh, came to Charlotte to succeed uh, the successful career of Dr. Dan Morrill, who ran the program here at Historic Landmarks Commission for over four decades. So I'm, I'm glad to be back. Yeah, well, welcome back. And, you know, it's changed a lot in that time. But, uh, of course, you're focused on preserving some of what we've got and um, and adapting our existing historic fabric to the new the new Charlotte. So we're this fast growing, you know, it's almost a cliche, but new South City. Uh, it seems like there's new buildings on the skyline every year. And we get knocked for um, tearing down historic buildings. And, you know, people sometimes have told me Charlotte is this new city that doesn't have history. So, you know, how do you approach that? And and what do you say when you hear that sort of thing from people? I I definitely understand uh, the attitude or the approach uh, or the observations. We are certainly um, have been for probably 150 years or more since the discovery of gold, uh, kind of reinventing uh, our community on a pretty rapid basis. Um, As far as getting knocked around for not being historic or not respecting uh, our historic fabric, I would say that in pushing back just a little bit, the Historic Landmarks Commission has over 350 local landmarks throughout Mecklenburg County, and that's a program that leads the state in its success stories. Um, The city of Charlotte has six local historic districts, and that includes over 3,700 structures uh, on almost 1,000 acres of land. Now, just to be clear, that's less than 1% of the developable area in the city of Charlotte. So it's still a minute amount. But, you know, there's a local preservation program for the city of Davidson. And there's, we're starting to see growth in private preservation initiatives. For instance, 
The Charlotte Museum of History has really taken um, an active role in preservation advocacy issues. And there is a newly formed uh, local nonprofit and uh, organization known as Preserve Mecklenburg. And uh, I think they're getting up on their feet and they're going to be uh, uh, just one new and a multifaceted approach to uh, historic preservation in Charlotte. So Charlotte, to me, is this city that has this um, impulse to grow, this impulse to, you know, find the next big thing and really reach, um, you know, world class, the national stage, whatever uh, you want to put in there. And I was looking back, actually, for a different project through some old reports and found one from a special section from 1955 or 1954's Charlotte News. And it was just about the city's growth and how, how great Charlotte is and had this kind of very boosterish beginning. And that intro included this statement, men to be worth their salt must build and a town to be worth its spot on the map must go forward. And to me, that kind of encapsulated this certain strain of Charlotte attitude um, about growth and, and the new. So taking a step back, why is it important to balance preserving some parts of the past with that growth and that striving for the future? Well, I mean, I guess that goes ultimately to the question, why does it matter to preserve anything, right? So ultimately, the purpose of historic preservation is to not arrest the development within a city. Our mission as preservationists are to identify the important places, the important components of the built environment, whether that is commercial buildings in our uptown, uh, industrial buildings from our manufacturing history, or neighborhoods that retain um, uh, significance and integrity that speaks to a very specific part of our past. Uh, and there's room on, uh, there's room to allow for new development. So it, it really must be made clear that historic preservationists are not stuck in the past, nor are we here to work to arrest any and all development. I think there's a, a really good sweet spot for both to happen. And you see that in a lot of communities. Now, in some communities like Asheville, there was arrested development because the city, you know, in the 20s basically went broke. Uh, and so there was a real challenge in new development. Um, I do think that Charlotte has kind of tipped the scales in a, a, a large part of its past, looking for advances in development. And to that extent, I do think that we have lost a lot of our connections to the past that are so important to try to retain in so many communities. Yeah, and, and what are the benefits of that? I mean, I think some people here, preservationists, and they think, you know, this is um, about putting things in a jewel box and keeping them exactly as they are, you know, freezing, freezing a city or a building in amber, as it were. But, you know, understanding that it's not that we've got to accommodate growth and figure out how to move forward as well. What are some concrete benefits? I mean, why does it, why does it matter to people to have links to the past in the physical built environment? Right, right. Well, so for your listeners that are expecting some, some sort of nostalgic uh, kumbaya overtones from somebody stuck in the past, let, let me just uh, put that uh, notion to rest. Number one, the environment. The greenest building is the one that's already built. Imagine, if you will, the 
amount of embodied energy that is represented by construction materials that are within historic buildings. Yes, I just I just changed one faucet in one sink here and the amount of in, embodied materials in just my existing vanity I discovered was pretty huge. So multiply that by a whole building and yeah, you can see the green aspect of it. Right. And, and you know, I, I, I used to chuckle the, the leadership in energy and environmental design or better known as LEADS program certification for green building practices for, for years would give you a higher points score for putting a bicycle rack out in front of your new building than they would for giving you points for retaining an original building. And I just thought that that was ludicrous. Of course, Leeds has, has seen that era and, and made a lot of changes in, in how they do score. But construction debris is the leading contributor, contributor to our landfill. Um, imagine this, the, the National Trust reports, the National Trust for Historic Preservation reports that each year approximately 1 billion square feet of buildings are demolished and replaced with new construction. Wow. Now, whether that new construction is some green gizmo that's meant to save the world or not, um, it can take up to 80 years for a new energy efficient building to overcome, even through efficient operations, the climate change impacts that are created by its construction. Uh, just pause on that for a moment and then reflect that much of our new construction methods today include a very specific lifespan for the building. In other words, it's, it's called merchant construction. What is the return on investment for constructing the building? When is that completely met? And that indicates a lifespan of a building. And that's that's a, a fatal flaw that we engage in today in our development world. Yeah, I've talked with um, uh, developers and people involved in a lot of the new stick-built apartment projects around town, and you know some of those horizons are um, are shockingly short. You know, fifty yeah. years, something in that time frame, and it does make you question what we're going to be doing as a city in twenty seventy. Well, look at it this way. Um, New construction, I mean, just by its very existence, is very, it's highly dependent on materials and less dependent or less of an investment on labor. Whereas the rehabilitation and the adaptive reuse of a historic building by its very nature is less dependent on materials and manufacturing of those materials and much more dependent on the labor, oftentimes the high skill set labor that's involved in rehabilitating those buildings. So when we are creating jobs and rehabbing buildings, we're generating a higher skill set, we're keeping that, that revenue, that investment, that cash uh, represented by a payroll closer to our own community. Um, and we are advancing a higher skill set among those workers. I mean, take for instance, the skills needed to understand how to rehab a historic window versus the skills needed to slap in a petroleum-based plastic window unit that's gonna fail within the next 10, 20 years anyway and end up back in the landfill. Further, you know, on the, it, it's, it's truly economic development. I challenge anybody to pick up any edition of the Charlotte Business Journal throughout the entire year and try to find an edition that does not include the phrase adaptive reuse. Since I've gotten to town last December a year ago, 
uh, 90% of those editions of the business journal have at least one reference to the phrase adaptive reuse. So there is an energy and a momentum towards that type of work that supports preservation. It's attractive to the marketplace. The consumer is looking for an authentic, unique environment and a unique experience. We've been told this for the last decade with the millennials coming online. In fact, I truly believe that the pandemic is adding to the pent up angst of this pursuit of authenticity even more. And so when we come out of the other side of the current situation that we find ourselves in, our community is going to be yearning to embrace the real Charlotte, the authentic and historic Charlotte. The smart developers, they want to they want to meet the consumer where the consumer wants to be. And that means that smart developers needs to be looking at adapting historic properties. And I think we see that a lot with, um, you know, obviously big projects like Camp North End, um, adaptive reuse on a, a massive scale just north of Uptown and a lot of the mill projects um, that people really like in neighborhoods like Noda, um, South End and other areas. Um, what's driving that? Is it really, um, you know, the developers seeking lower, uh, lower cost than building new buildings? Is it uh, what consumers want? Um, is it regulatory changes? Uh, what's, what's really been driving the boom in adaptive reuse in Charlotte? I, I think that there's a sweet spot for it um, that involves all of those. It, it involves the, the evolution of the consumer really almost revolting from the vanilla style big box retailer and genuinely looking for that unique experience and environment. I think that it is a somewhat small cadre of developers that recognize that marketplace and embrace it and work to produce that product through adaptive reuse. And I, I also think that it is um, uh, in part um, a result in a really sophisticated set of financial incentives at both the local, state, and federal levels. You know, Camp North End, one of my mentors used to call a lot of our preservation projects kind of a 20-year overnight success story. Uh, that property, the, the Ford Motor Company manufacturing site, has been on our radar for over 20 years. The very first conversations about preservation of that site was, you know, two and a half decades ago. Um, that site is utilizing the federal and state rehabilitation tax credits that help incentivize redevelopment. That site is a locally designated landmark, which means that their property taxes for a portion of that site are cut in half by a property tax deferral. Um, and so, you know, I do think that it is a combination. And look, you know, if, if there are folks out there that are questioning these facts about both the consumer and the developers that are recognizing what the consumer wants. Look at every small town in every county that surrounds Mecklenburg County, and you will see an intensive focus on historic preservation on main streets and in the surrounding neighborhoods as a direct strategy to attract folks from our community to those other locations. Yeah, I've really been impressed um, in especially uh, a lot of former mill towns and textile towns. I think Shelby, Kannapolis, Cramerton, there's a lot of examples out there of communities really 
consciously and intentionally focusing on that. And, you know, with people able to work remotely now, I think we'll probably see more interest. Um, I know anecdotally I have anyway, just among people I know. And, you know, if I could move to a place like that and not have to commute to Charlotte every day, that's a much more attractive option. And, and those towns have um, historic resources they can use to create that. Yeah, that's right. And the, I mean, Gastonia, for example, uh, Luray Mill, gigantic mill facility. I think it's seven or eight stories tall, was a, uh, a Goodyear tire manufacturing site surrounded by a mill village that probably has 200 mill houses. And I think it's pretty, pretty reasonable to reflect on Gastonia of 10, 20 years ago with a pretty high level of skepticism. Um, there is a renaissance happening in that community, and it's because of the redevelopment of Luray Mill. One, uh, of course, multi-million dollar project is, is kind of the, the spearhead for um, the Gastonia revival. And, you know, in, in our own community, we saw this start in historically what should be referred to as North Charlotte, but um, is commonly referred to as Noda. Uh, we, we saw this start, you know, 20 years ago there as well. And the, the bedrock or the foundation that historic preservation provided in that area has spurred even additional growth. And we do see, you know, new construction happening there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good example of um, balancing the old and the new, I think. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that goes back to this notion. A lot of folks want to pigeonhole preservationists into this um, kind of kumbaya, nostalgic, sentimental category, or they want to call us the hysteric preservationists because we, you know, they think we want to chain ourselves to bulldozers or put the yard signs out front. The contemporary preservationist is not that. The contemporary preservationist is one that, that, that understands and sees how to balance new growth and development with the protection of our past. Turning to that past a little bit, there's a fascinating section on the um, Historic Landmarks Commission website called Lost Historic Properties. And I remember when I discovered this, you know, clicking through the list and seeing the pictures and reports, I was really surprised at some of the buildings, you know, that used to exist in Uptown, like the Masonic Temple or the Hotel Charlotte. Are there any that we've lost that, you know, give you particular angst? You know, if you could reach back in history and say, you know, boy, if I could go back to 1973 or, you know, when something like uh, the historic or the Hotel Charlotte was torn down, that's one I would reach back and, and pull, pull into the present day. Yeah, um, there are two, one of which is actually an entire neighborhood, and that's Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. The second mm -hmm. Ward. You know, the, the irony that uh, we have a park space that's actually designed in somewhat of a, a brutalist form that now occupies a large part of what was probably one of the most historically important African-American communities in Charlotte, uh, Second Ward. You know, that, that general area of downtown um, you know, it retains maybe four historic properties today, and we're actually working on one of them. It's the McCrory YMCA, just across from the First Baptist Church uptown from the 1930s. So that would be probably one of the most angst-ridden losses that I've seen. And that the complexities of that type of loss with, you know, 
federal policy and urban renewal, even finance policy. Well, Tom Hanchett could write an entire book about it, right? <laughs> um, and it has, yeah. <laughs> and as, as far as a specific site, I, I think you nailed it. Um, at least for me personally, it would be the Masonic Temple. Now, I wasn't in town when it happened, but um, you know, it was it was it was open October eleventh, nineteen twenty one. It was the second temple in Charlotte. It was designed by a man named Willard Rogers, and it was in the Egyptian Revival style. The really the last example of this Egyptian Revival style architecture in North Carolina. First Union, a legacy employer, a legacy bank, financial institution for the Carolinas, bought the property in nineteen eighty seven, and. Um, from the records that I've seen, it was actually a pretty big challenge in our community. There were a lot of folks that really worked hard to speak up about the preservation of that building. Um, ultimately, it was lost. I think that uh, in 1987, 88, 89, it would have been um, a, a great opportunity to spring the preservation movement from that loss and develop a broader preservation initiative for Charlotte. But that's something that we're seeing today with um, with other organizations that are that are getting on board. And so one one dynamic I saw, especially when I was um, a reporter covering development, was that a lot of times it seemed people didn't necessarily know about or appreciate a historic property until you know a rezoning proposal hit or a development plan was disclosed, and you know they saw it would not be around anymore. What can people do to appreciate, understand, and um, you know, kind of understand what we've got before someone uh, says, "Well, I might tear this building down," because uh, a lot of times by then, you know, plans are already in, in the in the works. Right. Well, I think there's a couple of things. I, I think that one one contributing challenge that we have in Charlotte is that we are a city of newcomers. And so um, the, the storytelling that helps the newcomer understand the history of the community, uh, embrace the history of the community, and really become one with the community at a, in a much uh, more rapid pace than perhaps uh, you know, folks that are moving to other new cities. If there's, if there's an opportunity to really embrace the new folks to town, an opportunity to enhance the storytelling about the importance of our history and our and our historic built environment. I think that's really, really key. Um, I'm also reminded of my kindergarten teacher when she told me, you know, you may be hearing what I say, but you're not listening to what I say. I think uh, that there is a, an opportunity, if not a responsibility for folks to not only see the historic buildings around them, but to really look at them, really embrace the, the craftsmanship and the level of detail, because a lot of the storytelling can really come directly from that. Um, and then lastly, I, I think that where we have a really great advantage here is um, our collection of modernist and mid-century architecture because that stuff is hot. It is in vogue. And I, I think the vast majority of folks have come to understand that historic preservationists aren't stuck in some Victorian period. We're all wearing black because we're mourning all the time. You know, in the, in the 60s and 70s, we were, we were all about the Victorian houses. And in the 80s and 90s, we embraced the arts and crafts movements. And, and now we're really looking at the, the mid-century stuff. 
very popular. Uh, Charlotte is full of it. And I'm really encouraged because I see uh, so many folks embracing that uh, aesthetic movement. And I think that that could really lead to, to great benefits and preservation here. And that kind of leads into my, my next and, and final question, which is, you know, this city, this county looks a lot different than it did 20 years ago. How do you think we'll look different in 2040, specifically as it relates to historic preservation? What are you excited about that's on, on the horizon? And do you think that we are doing a good enough job that in 2040 we'll look back and say, yeah, we, um, we saved what we needed to save and we moved forward in ways we needed to move forward? Well, I think there are opportunities and I think there are challenges. I think the maybe a more prescient question or related at least is what are our landfills going to look like? You know, uh, I came to Charlotte in 2001 and my office was at Atherton Mills. And for your listeners that don't know where that is because you can't see it today from South Boulevard, it's basically where the West Elm Furniture Store is, right? Behind that podium, five-story wood frame apartment building is a historic mill that you can see from the rail line. Uh, when I came back to town a year ago, I went looking for Atherton Mill. I was like, well, where is it? And I had to go back and dig for it. When I came to town in 2001, there were really no meaningful residential towers in uptown. Yet. And, uh, you know, I'm today surprised by the continuation of suburban sprawl. I am surprised. I'm disheartened by the increased pace of teardowns, be it historic or even non-historic properties. Looking forward, I'm hopeful that we see a reduction in the surface parking within our uptown. I think that it's ridiculous that there's that, I mean, tens if not hundreds of acres dedicated to surface parking in downtown Charlotte. We should be embarrassed by that. I think that looking forward 20 years from now, I'm, I'm hopeful that we will see revitalized urban neighborhoods and revitalized commercial corridors. We're, we're starting to see the green shoots of that. Uh, North Tryon, Beatty's Ford Road, very excited about a a number of historic properties that that we're going to take an intentional look at along the Beatty's Ford Road corridor. But I guarantee you that we will still be struggling with suburban sprawl and there will be teardowns and, you know, in the challenges of gentrification that comes with that. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm not completely negative about the future. I, I, I do think there are going to continue to be some of these challenges, but I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see some positive change as well. Well, let's hope you're right. I think, um, I think there's a lot of things to be excited about, and hopefully people will um, start paying, to some, paying attention to some of the history we've got here before it's on the chopping block. Jack, thanks so much for joining us, and I really appreciate your time. Eli, thank you so much for having me today. Thanks for joining us on the Future Charlotte podcast, produced by me, Eli Portillo, at the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. Keep looking to the future, Charlotte.